Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We are now nearing the end of our second season, and we are just more excited than ever to continue to help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. We look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here are issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues and more. So listen in today's show as we interview experts today on food production. Today we're going to talk about the challenges to environment and health. Now food production, as the name suggests, is all about preparing food and getting it ready-made into food products for human use, either in the home or in related industries. Its processes comprise scientific approaches and has many sections. In this process, there are large numbers of plant and animal products which are used for our well-being. They provide us with food, which comes from, of course, both plants and animals. And these include grains, spices, honey, nuts, cereal, milk, vegetables, fruits, eggs, milk, chicken, and so on. And the existence of our life is completely dependent on plants and animals. Altogether, plant and animal species provide 90% of global energy as well. Food production is further classified into different types, including cultivation, selection, crop management, harvesting, crop crop production, preserving, baking, pasteurizing, pudding, carving, butchering, fermenting, and more. And each of these comes with its own environmental and health challenges. Food production derived from agriculture depends on a wide diversity of crop species found across the planet. As many as 100 different crops used for human food are registered in our global agricultural databases, and many more are locally grown and consumed. Yet, I'm told that approximately 63% of food production relies on only five species. Those would be sugarcane, maize, wheat, rice, and potatoes. Understanding the complex links between food production derived from agriculture and the diversity of our agricultural produce, which has to feed an expected 9 billion people, this is as challenging as it is critical. And most food production today is derived from highly intensive agricultural systems with low diversity. In fact, the sites with the highest agricultural yields are those, I'm told, where most plants correspond to only one species and to one or a few genetic combinations. For example, wheat and rice in China and sugarcane in Brazil. The diversity of plant crops, as well as that of the stuff that's in the soils, as well as weeds, herbivores, carnivores, 
et cetera, that interact with them is all relevant to the provision of food and food production service. Food production and processing is one of the most demanding sectors of human activity as far as safety and quality control are concerned, and it's driven by more and more increasing demands by global regulatory authorities as well as the enhanced public awareness. Animal food production systems can also be viewed as a chain of successive steps, each of which holds potential for introduction of salmonella or other types of infection and contamination. And due to the population growth and changes in consumption patterns, the demand for food grains is likely to increase by 30 to 40% in the next 20 years or so. And meats are a whole other consideration. Thus, there is an ever-increasing stress on our agricultural system. This is a lot. And here today to help us understand and explore some of this is David Tillman. Dave has a PhD in ecology from the University of Michigan, as well as a BS in zoology from the University of Michigan. Dr. Tillman has a dual appointment at the Brin School of Environmental Science and Management at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and he is with the University of Minnesota, where he is Regents Professor and McKnight Presidential Chair in Ecology, as well as Director of the University's Cedar Creek Ecosystem Science Reserve. Dave's research focuses on the causes, consequences, and conservation of Earth's biodiversity and on how managed and natural ecosystems can sustainably meet human needs for food, for energy, and the various ecosystem services. His work on sustainable agriculture and renewable energy has critically examined the full environmental, energetic, and economic costs and benefits of grain crops, of current food-based biofuels and of biofuels made from diverse mixtures of prairie grasses and other native plants. Dave has dedicated much of his career to communicating with the public, with politicians, and the managers of Earth's ecosystems in policy context, which makes him the perfect person to help us dissect and delve into this very complex but common subject today. Welcome, Dave. We're so glad you could be with us today. And did I get all of that right? Oh, you did. You uh, said wonderful things about me. Thank you. <laughs> well, we're good. I'm glad. Let's start out by looking at the food production. And if you can tell us what is the food production system or the production of the food we eventually eat, what does that consist of? What are its components? Well, its central components are farmers hundreds of millions of people. In fact, there are hundreds of millions of people who grow their own food around the world as subsistence farmers in poor nations. Then in richer nations, uh, there are farmers who grow many, many times more food, hundreds of times the food they need for themselves. And we who don't farm are the beneficiaries of what they've done. So if you look at the world, uh, about 4 billion acres of land around the world are planted to crops like corn, wheat, rice, sugarcane, all the vegetables and fruits that we eat. And then there are another about nine or 10 billion that are used for grazing animals, uh, livestock that, that use that land. So it's an immense part of the world that is needed uh, to produce the various crops uh, that become part of our food chain. And once they've been grown by the farmers, so that they go, uh, some go directly to consumers, uh, we buy the fruits and vegetables pretty much as farmers pack them up and send them off. 
Others are processed and turned into manufactured food of various kinds that we eat. So it's it's a huge global system uh, that has to be stable, that has to provide us with a secure food day after day, year after year, because without food, we can't make it. So the global food system is a critical part uh, of, of what it is required for the 8 billion of us on Earth right now to be here and to live healthy, productive lives. Now, that said, uh, there are some problems associated with the system, and you mentioned some of them. About 40% of the lands that we would say are all use, uh, useful to people are being farmed right now, farmed for crops and farmed for livestock. And there isn't that much more land out there that we can get, maybe another 10% that will be all useful for food production. And the problem that we face is that there are lots of other species on Earth that also need that space, that is their home. And it turns out that um, food production uh, on Earth has become the single greatest cause of species going extinct or becoming threatened with extinction, having being on a pathway toward extinction. And it's not so much what we do once we clear the land, it's having to clear all that land uh, to use it to uh, grow crops and graze, and graze our livestock. And we can't continue to clear more land for agriculture if we want to have an earth that still has the various species on it. That is interesting, and that's one of the things that most of us probably never get around to thinking about, is that the food we eat is driving out the space and the space for the existence of many other types of animals many of which we could also be dependent upon for various, as you say, ecosystem services or various services to enable our living or enable the quality of our life. Right like before we get to the important part. <laughs> well, I, I, I like to say that, uh, in essence, uh, every time we eat any food, we're eating a little bit of the habitat of elephants and so on. I like to say, you know, are you an elephant eater for people? And clearly, we don't eat elephants directly, but we nibble away at their habitat. And we nibble away at the habitat. In North America, we got most of the bison habitat is now corn and soybeans and so on. This happens all around the world. So we have to look ahead to where we're going as a species. We want to have a world that's sustainable 50 years and 100 years and 1,000 years from now. So we have to plan. And we're not planning very much when it comes to global food. Indeed, and we're going to go to break now, but I'm reminded of what all of us have been seeing on television lately with these elephants migrating. That's a picture-perfect snapshot of some of what's happening. But we'll get back to this on the other side, and we have been with Dr. Dave Tillman from the University of Minnesota as well as UC Santa Barbara. We'll be right back on the other side. Thank you. We want to give a shout-out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at NHG.com. And our other sponsor is Lindental Care. 
practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, and looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to Healthy Living Healthy Planet Radio to the first show this month on food production. And today we're with Dr. Dave Tillman, and he's helping us to understand and unpack the challenges to environment and health of food production. I want to go back to something you said on the other side as you were giving us an introduction or a primer or definition of the food production system. And you gave us some of the various elements. But what comes to my mind is there's a lot of steps involved in our food production. But two things I want to look at. There's the actual produce that we can take from gardens or the farmer's market or pick up at the grocery store like a squash or apple orange. And then there's all the stuff we buy that's processed or packaged. Is there any sense of statistics or percentage of the food we eat that is processed or that has all this other stuff done to it, as opposed to, I guess, produce, the ones where we pick up and we take as is or pretty much as is? Well, the typical grocery store has 30 to 50,000 different items in it. I find amazing that only a couple hundred of them are the things that farmers actually grow. You know, beef, uh, pork, chicken, uh, broccoli, uh, apples, oranges, and kinds of things. And so there are an incredible number of prepared foods that are sold in, in grocery stores. Um, so that's one part of it. The other issue is sort of what motivates the people who produce them. Clearly, they're in it for profit. And one of the sad things about what, what happens is the cheapest ingredients that a producer of food can get are refined white flour, sugar, salt, and fats. Uh, and with those ingredients and with the right flavorings, they can make, make foods that we love, but they're not very good for us. And that is a, a big health problem for the, for the world, a public health problem. More and more people are eating more of these uh, processed, prepared foods that are unhealthy, but taste so good they can't resist them. And it's something that's probably not done deliberately, but um, in our long history on Earth for humanity, uh, the foods that were good for us became the ones that we liked the taste of. And so a little bit of sugar and a piece of fruit told us that was a good thing to eat, and we liked the sugary taste. Now we can buy a soft drink or a piece of candy that is almost pure sugar, and it tastes even better. And that makes us want to eat even more of it. And so basically instincts we have that are good for us in the past are failing us right now. They're telling us to eat more of the foods that, of these processed foods that are actually bad for us. The same thing happens with the flavors that go into foods. Flavors that were good, that were part of a food that was good for us are now being used to make us eat or encourage us to eat more foods that are bad for us. And they're bad for us because they really have these cheap, unhealthy ingredients. That gives the food producer the maximum profit. It gives us diabetes, heart disease, uh, cancers, and so on. It's a really vicious cycle we're in right now. We're much better off eating those 200 from the farmer-like foods than we are all the processed foods. You know, there's a ray of hope. I have a number of farmer's markets friends and colleagues, and in our magazine, we just 
Friday went to print on our very popular seventh annual farmer's market guide. I talked to a lot of them. And the glimmer of hope is that farmer's markets have been doing exceptionally well during the COVID pandemic. Farmer's markets have lots of advantages. I think the biggest advantage is that it lets us get really fresh food. And really fresh food, these basic things farmers grow, are the best things we can eat. Those vegetables and those fruits taste better because they're locally grown, they're fresh, they're coming right to us ripe. Uh, And because they taste better, we eat more of them. And by doing that, we're helping the environment because those are the foods that have the lowest environmental impact of anything we eat. And they're helping our health because they're also the healthiest thing. Vegetables, fruits, uh, nuts, uh, legumes, uh, whole grains are are the things that are really, really good for us. And those are the things you eat more of when you get things from a farmer's market. So it's just really that, plus you get to meet a farmer, you get to talk with them, you feel like you're part of it. They feel like you're part of their life. It's this wonderful uh, symbiotic, mutualistic relationship that is helping all of us. Indeed, and it avoids one of the things you mentioned I want to dig into a little bit now is not only is it good for our health, but it's good for the environment, a part of which is cutting down on transport of that food. But I want to talk now, Dave, if you would explain to us the difference between food processing and food manufacturing and how each of these impacts our environment as well as our health. Well, I'm not quite sure about the difference. I've heard different people use those two words in different ways, so I'm not quite sure. Um, Some foods are minimally processed, uh, and that decreases the energy required to do it and so on. Uh, It also doesn't change what they have to offer us on the nutrition side very much. But when they become more highly manufactured, uh, then it's a rare processing procedure that leaves all the full nutritious value in those foods. Whole grains, for instance, are very healthy things. They're they're filled with things other than just starch. Refined white flour is just basically starch. Uh, Whole whole grain rice, brown rice, is a healthy food, and white rice is the second biggest known cause of diabetes, eating too much white rice. Mm -hmm. All the nutrition has been stripped from it. So uh, I guess what... um, the hard part is the consumer is looking at a package and knowing how healthy it is for us and what it does to the environment. And I'm hoping we can uh, work toward having better information on packages. I'm working on a project to try to do that with one of my former grad students who's now uh, at Oxford University in, in the UK, um, where we are analyzing ingredients and coming up with a way to rank each food by how good it is for you, help for your health, and how good it is for the environment. And this is hard because there are 50,000 foods in a typical grocery store. Indeed. But, you know, I'm sure you are just as excited as I am and was when it happened when we began to get the food and the nutrition labels on our foods. So for those uh, those, those of us who are aware, we can at least look for certain components and, and compare. Like I do, I may take two products that are pretty much the same, and I may compare the amount of fiber, the amount of carbs, the amount of sugar. Uh, What I would like to see and what I was hoping you were going to say you're working on a project that would elongate that label and let the second part of that label be the environmental impact or the environmental components. For example, the amount of fuel used because this was transported from wherever. I think that's the next step, perhaps, in our food labeling. I agree. In fact, I think that's I, – I want both the health and the environment. And the dilemma is 
you know, we all lead, lead busy lives and we don't have the time to do the kind of thing I do as a scientist and study all these foods. And we don't all have the skill and knowledge to know which things are good or bad for me on that back label. Um, so being able to convert that into something which says uh, in an unbiased scientific way that this is uh, better or worse for you than the typical food um, for your health and also better or worse for the environment than typical food, I think would be very helpful for many consumers. Indeed, and in a way that is understood and internalized by consumers, which is a big challenge and a big need. So certainly, and we hope you're around for a long time to do this good work. Dave, can you talk to us now about what currently are some of the greatest environmental challenges with producing our food? I know you've talked a few of them, but if you could rank those somewhat. The greatest challenges, and then at the end of that, tell people about those that they may not have even thought about. Okay, well, I would say the two greatest challenges are greenhouse gas emissions, global warming, as well, caused by um, global food production, uh, and species extinctions. And greenhouse gas emissions, food, how we just grow our food up until it gets to a grocery store, or actually before then, up until it gets to a processing place, releases 30% of total greenhouse gas emissions. It's more, it's twice as much as all the cars uh, and airplanes on earth release every year. Global food production is a major source of greenhouse gas emissions. It's much worse than the things we think about getting a more efficient car. It's actually twice as important that we have a more efficient diet for greenhouse gases and global warming. So that's, that's one, that's one that we maybe know about, but maybe not many people realize quite how severe the impacts on climate are from agriculture. I do not think that they do. I think it's getting over about fossil fuels, but it's not getting out there for some reason. I guess because they figure like, oh, we have to eat so we can't deal with that. Not realizing there are, and we'll get to this towards the end of our show, that there are many ways to mitigate this. Right. But yeah. many people never put greenhouse gas emissions up there or connote it with the food we eat. If you can connect the dots for people, tell them exactly how agriculture, food production results in the greenhouse gas emissions. Good. Good question. Okay. So of that 30% of the total global emissions that come from agriculture, about one-third of those, about 10% of global emissions, uh, come uh, from new land being cleared to grow more crops all around the world. That's, that's the bulldozers and all of that, whatever. It's just yep, clearing, tearing down. down. It's even uh, in the last 20 years, we've cleared several million acres of a former prairie in the United States to grow more food. It's not just other places, it's also here. But it, it occurs all around the world. Uh, so that's, that's uh, one part of it. That's one-third of the global food emissions. Mm -hmm. uh, another third comes from... Uh, livestock production, uh, mainly cattle and sheep, which because, because of the methane they reduce, they, they release, but also just growing all the grains that are, that it is, are required uh, to feed our livestock, our chicken and so on, all of that stuff, the greenhouse gas from that. It's basically from clearing the land from the livestock and the methane that they produce and fertilizer. Right. That's it. Okay. And again, we'll talk about this more on the other side, but I want to make a mention and stick a pin in the methane that animals produce, because that's another one of those hidden things or things that people don't think about or don't know about. 
And really, in like 30 seconds, how do animals produce methane? And is it all animals? Do dogs and cats produce it or what? No, it's almost, it's mainly from um, cattle and sheep. They have a, a special kind of multi-part stomach that has bacteria living in it. And those bacteria and microbes digest the grass, but at the same time, they make methane. We don't make methane, people. Uh, don't, re don't release methane. We, we release hydrogen gas because we have different kinds of bacteria in our guts. Indeed. That's an interesting point. We're going to go to break now, and we will be right back with Dr. Dave on the other side. Thank you, Dave. We really appreciate it. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on food production, challenges to environment and health, and we are back with Dr. David Tillman from the University of Minnesota and from UC Santa Barbara. Again, we really appreciate you being with us, and you are really making us smarter. Today, before the break, you connected the dots for us in terms of how Food production creates greenhouse gases, and you mentioned it's mainly from the methane gas produced by livestock that most of us are not aware of, as well as a number of other things that are causing the global warming. The other mention you made was species extinction. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? What may have been the most recent species that we may have known of that have become extinct or some that we are worried about that may become extinct in the near future due to our food production? Well, um, there are about 25,000 species uh, of uh, animals uh, on Earth that are, are known to be threatened with extinction. That means they are their habitat has been destroyed so much or they've been hunted so heavily that they're now incredibly rare. Uh, and uh, unless things change, they're on this sort of glide path toward disappearing. Um, and these include a, a variety of species of primates uh, in, uh, in Asia, uh, tigers and so on, uh, uh, large predators around the world. Um, and when you look at all these species that have been studied and are now known to be threatened with extinction, 80% of these species of the analyses show are threatened by agriculture, mainly land clearing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this land clearing right now is going on in the tropics, which are the, the center part of global diversity. So the, 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 I consider the species on earth to be our riches, our natural heritage of the earth. And this natural heritage is now incredibly threatened by uh, our need for more food. Dave. The pictures that we have all been seeing these last few weeks about the elephants making their trek, and I just saw a picture a couple of days ago where all of them were laid on their sides asleep. Does that have anything to do with human encroachment for agriculture or other things on their habitats? Absolutely. Uh, whether it's the elephants there or tigers uh, in India, um, rhinos and in Malaysia, Borneo, and so on, all these animals are losing habitat. It's being converted into farmland, into roads, uh, to some extent cities, but cities actually have a pretty small area. They're a very dense habitation for people. So it's it just expanding human population and our need for more land to grow our foods and more land to live on and to move about on that is squeezing out uh, the large animals of the earth. 
as well as many, many smaller animals. But it, it's a, it is a major global crisis. So it's a crisis that we have to find a way to solve in the next uh, decade or two, or we're going to lose a large number of these remaining majestic animals from all around the world. And I don't think people really understand or really get it that the species are all intertwined and interconnected with each other, and to some degree, I'm told, our plant life. Like when we lose one species, that can create a domino effect on other animals and plants. It is often said, and uh, it's very scientifically true, that all the species that live in an ecosystem uh, are interdependent with each other. An ecosystem has hundreds of thousands of different species living in it. Each of these species is different. Each of them really is almost like a human profession. They do something that they do very, very well, that nothing else can do that well, and that's why they are able to live there. But they can't live there without all the other species doing what they do very well. If in the United States we lost the job classification of garbage collectors, we'd be in trouble. If we lost heart surgeons or any other kind of position, we'd be in trouble. If we lost accountants or teachers or anything else, name all these professions. We need every one of them to be a healthy, stable, uh, productive society. Very interesting, Dave. Could you talk to us a little bit now about how we can reduce the carbon footprint of our food? And then my hardware question I really want to know is what would happen if we quit using fossil fuels right now? What would that impact be on our food system and our climate? Well, I'm going to answer that second one first, because yeah. that'll make the first, the, the first part be more in, important and interesting. If we could somehow stop all fossil fuel combustion on Earth right now, the greenhouse gas emissions solely from agriculture over the next 50 to 100 years uh, are going to push us past the two climate barriers that the UN says are very important never to go past. Before the end of the century, food production alone on Earth would push us past warming of, of a bit more than four degrees Fahrenheit, which is a two degree Celsius limit that the UN says that we really have to try to avoid uh, passing. And that's just from food. That's from the land clearing, the fertilizer, and the livestock. If we do things like we're doing them now and just keep doing them, agriculture alone is going to be a serious cause of global. We have to change the food system, not just uh, the, um, uh, the combustion of fossil fuels if we're going to have a livable climate on Earth. How do we go about reducing the carbon footprint of our food and the well, food production? There are two things we can do. One is we know how to grow our crops in ways that will greatly reduce the greenhouse gas emissions. We can especially control uh, the, uh, the greenhouse gas emissions that come from fertilizer, which produces a gas called nitrous oxide laughing gas, which is nothing to laugh at because it is incredibly potent. It's like putting a down blanket around the whole world. It holds, all the, it holds heat in it at an immense rate. We can, so we, by fertilizing properly, by having farmers add the right amount of fertilizer at the right time for particular crops, uh, we can greatly reduce that effect. The other one is a bit more complex. We don't really have a way to get rid of the methane that comes out of, of um, cattle and sheep. And so basically, we have to eat less of it. There's a little way around it. We have to eat less of those things. Some red meat in a diet is healthy for you. 
But it turns out too much red meat is not at all good for your health. And so it might be a win-win for us all if we um, reduced our beef consumption down to, uh, let's say, a couple servings a week as opposed to the six or seven servings a week many people have right now. That would have huge benefits for health and huge benefits for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The last thing we need to do, land clearing. Remember, that's one-third of our, our agricultural emissions. Most land around the world produces much less food than it could if really good agricultural methods were used. And by helping people, especially in the low-income developing countries, achieve the full potential of their land, they won't need to clear much land in the future, and that will get rid of 10% of our global greenhouse gas emissions uh, 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 that otherwise would come from clearing land in those countries to produce more food. And I hear the term regenerative farming used often. Is that what you're speaking of? Yeah, regenerative farming would be part of this. Um, there are some good parts to conventional agriculture, and there's some good things to regenerative farming. And right now, I don't want to let a name stand in the way of a wise solution. So yes, regenerative farming uh, tries to keep nutrients within the farm ecosystem. It tries to minimize loss by using cover crops. It, it tries to put manure back into the fields to let it be, uh, uh, add back fertility. It does many wise things. But there are also wise things about conventional agriculture. And there's something in between these two, which I think is gonna be what we eventually adopt that will, that will let us have a truly sustainable global food system that can provide us healthy diets and prevent greenhouse gas emissions and prevent all the other environmental impacts that come out of agriculture, the water pollution and the air pollution in particular. Indeed, this is a lot. And we've got just one minute to go before break. And after the break, I want to focus in on more health issues because we talk a lot about environment. But one last thing is kind of between the two. We talk about the impact on our environment by food production, but there is a lot of food wasted from the time of the production process until it reaches us consumers. And that's all causing issues. What do you think is the best way to conserve some of the wastage of our food? Because that impacts environment, but also farmers and their bottom line. What do you think on that before we go to break? Well, food wastage is a, a serious issue. Um, some wastage is almost unavoidable in any given system. But we're wasting 30 to 40% of all the food we produce, and most of that happens in homes, and the next biggest part is in grocery stores. Up until then, farmers and manufacturers are very efficient. We have to be wiser consumers, and we have to have grocery stores sell us the right amount of a food for us to eat it so we don't have to get extra and throw it away. And I like to say, yeah. remember that what you don't eat for dinner is going to be your lunch the next day. Make it delicious for dinner so that you won't mind eating it for lunch the next day because we can't afford to throw that food away day after day. It is, and I have to think if people understand that and realize the very significant impact of food wastage, then we can get to doing something about it. We're going to go to break now, and we will be right back for our last segment with Dr. David Tillman. Thank you, Dave. We want to give a shout-out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download at nadallas.com. Check them out. 
Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DIY classes, gifts, and more. Check them out at nhg.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care. Practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, and looking at the whole body. Specializing in periodontics, Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Thank you, sponsors. Welcome back to today's episode of Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to our show on food production, challenges to environment and health, and we are with Dr. David Tillman from the University of Minnesota and UC Santa Barbara, and he is really making us smarter as well as piquing our interest about a lot of things that go into the food that we eat that we just never would have thought of. So thank you so much again, Dave, for taking time to be with us today. My pleasure. I want to focus in now on our last segment, more on health, while we have your expertise, to focus in again more on the health aspects of our food production. We talked about a lot of the environmental challenges, but one of those environmental challenges also strikes me as a very, very serious health challenge, and that is the effects of the pesticides and the herbicides that are used. And we know that they contain a lot of carcinogens that can be very damaging to our health. Can you talk to us about some of the effects of that and how they might be countered? Well, food production has issues, and that is we're putting out over thousands and globally billions of acres of land, a single species. And all the things that might eat that species besides us are various uh, insects, uh, fun, fungal diseases, viruses, and so on. So to control those, we use these pesticides. Unfortunately, though, things that are toxic to pests are almost always toxic to us. And as you said, they're carcinogens and so on. So there are two main things we can do. One is we can be incredibly wise, much wiser than we are now, in which pesticide we use and how much we use, and in particular, when we use it. Use the least possible at a time when you really have to have it. That's one approach. And the other approach is to use biodiversity um, to decrease the need for pesticides. Let me give you an example. For a long time, uh, one kind of rice, the sticky rice, that like the stuff that goes into um, lots of, of Chinese food um, and, uh, and Japanese food, uh, is very susceptible to a fungal disease. To control fungus, Chinese farmers had to apply an expensive and very toxic and bad for human and, and environmental health fungicide. And then someone uh, discovered that by taking this sticky rice and planting it with a row next to it of other dry rice, and then another row of sticky and another row of dry, they would make the sticky rice only be half as abundant. And by being less abundant, when a sticky rice plant got infected by fungus, many times it went hit another sticky uh, uh, rice individual and it, the fungus would fade away. And by doing something as simple as what's called intercropping, where you have rows of one crop and then rows of another crop, here are two different kinds of rice. Within a few years, they found they did not have to apply any pesticides at all that they had diluted 
the the host for this for that fungal disease enough by making it only every other row or only half of the rice on that field, they got rid of the need for a fungicide. That's called intercropping, growing two different crops side by side in alternative rows or alternative uh, uh, lines where you maybe have several rows of each crop. Turns out to be a very important way to control diseases that minimizes or eliminates the need for many pesticides. It also surprisingly gives you more food from an acre of land. It's about 20 to 30% more food can be harvested from land when you choose the right two crops to grow next to each other. Because one crop you'll put there will grow early in the year and, and be sort of a cool season crop that uses the spring rains and, and that time of the year to put its uh, major growth on and produce its food. And when it's starting to mature, the other crop that grows later in the year and needs heat to grow best will take over. Major research in the last decade has shown huge benefits for reducing the need for pesticides, having higher yields, and also reducing how much fertilizer is needed to produce these yields. That sounds like a win-win-win. It's a win for consumers in having food that has less additives and pesticides and herbicides. It's a win, I have to think, for the soil and its condition, and it's a win for the farmer's bottom line. So is everybody doing this, and why aren't they? Why they're not. Um, it's done a lot in China, where typical farms are small, where they're five acres or so in size, and, uh, and where, they can, where a farmer can go out and be much more particular in how they farm that, where they have smaller machinery that can harvest a, a few rows of one crop and a few rows of another. We haven't developed the machinery in the United States to do this on our large 100-acre, 500-acre, 1,000-acre farm. Um, if we had those machines, we then have to make sure we know exactly the right crops for that piece of land uh, to do this with. But with that, it's, a, it's truly a long-term win-win-win. This has to be one of the technologies we pursue in the future. It's interesting you say that because it's like in China, it's being done out of necessity. Mm -hmm because they don't have much acreage. Right. But here, where we have plenty to waste, acreage, not to waste, because you just went through very articulately and very much in detail on the first half of our show, the environmental effects and some health effects of using up all of our land or using so much of our land for agriculture production. But yet we're still doing that. Those 100-acre farms that we have, could give back that acreage and by using some proven techniques still produce almost just as much. So it really would be a win-win. You also mentioned a phrase, the right crops for the land. So I imagine maybe, I don't know, you tell me, what the alternating crops in China would be different than, say, the alternating crops that would need to be used in Texas because of the soil or something, or is it not relevant? Oh, it's, yeah, it could be different. There are, as you pointed out when we started the show, um, a few major crops grown all around the world. Uh, and so those would be the same. But they also depend on the climate and the soil where they do best. It just is going to take uh, an investment to get farmers to know this, to trust it. They have to, you know, they, no farmer can afford to gamble on their farmland. If they don't get a harvest one year, they, lose, they can lose their farm. So farmers are uh, wisely conservative in changing their practices. So this is going to take some serious research, some serious extension activities. It'll take uh, government support. It'll take uh, manufacturer support for machinery. 
and it won't happen instantly, but I hope over the next 20 years, uh, we can find the crops and the places uh, and the ways that we can get this extra 20% to 30% more food off our land and do it with lower impact from pesticides and fertilizers. Indeed. And I know here in Texas, we are doing a lot of work. In fact, just about five miles from where I am now, we have the Texas A&M University. It's called the Texas AgriLife Center. And they are phenomenal. They do a lot of research and teaching and working with local farmers and nationally to, to do some of the things that you are talking about. So that is heartening. And I have to think that what we eat also pushes back to some degree on what's grown. I know that there is probably a very delicate and intricate interplay between what food is grown and produced and what we eat. And it goes, I imagine, back and forth. You know, if someone sees major profit from a certain thing that we eat that all of us spend a lot of money on, they're going to grow more of that. So it's intertwined. We have just one minute to go. And I want to ask you just a couple more questions. One of them is, where do you think is the intersection with our food production and the COVID pandemic, or is there? Well, I don't think there's much of an intersection. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate thing is that during COVID, many people being cooped up in their house with all this easily readily available food around them ate too much and gained some weight. And we all got to go out and, and go for walks or runs, whatever it might be, and eat a little bit less. That's sort of one of the downsides of COVID. Um, and other than that, I don't see much of a, much of a link, honestly, with, with COVID. It, COVID is a horrible new disease. Maybe the deepest link is it came because people around the world were eating wild animals as a protein source. And that's why COVID came into being. In fact, the majority of human diseases are diseases that we got from the animals we've eaten. Indeed. And I think people are beginning to sense that because we're hearing a lot about those raw markets and things like that. Right. And even though I think there's a tendency that we don't do that here in the States, but COVID is proof positive of how globally interconnected we are, why we must care, and why we must be concerned here in the U.S. about people eating raw animals and things like that in other parts of the world. Yeah, I agree. It, it is a, a very serious long-term issue, and we have to solve that one also. Last thing, last word, and you got 30 seconds, and that is, in your opinion, what can and should people do, ordinary people in their everyday lives, to help drive solutions to some of these challenges and threats as it relates to our food production? If all people would eat healthier, that would solve an incredible number of problems. Having more fruits and vegetables, which are produced with low environmental impact and uh, less red meat, that dietary change, just done one meal at a time, one less meat meal in a week and having something else interesting there in place, that's all it takes. And to have that happen, what we need to do is put our efforts into creating delicious, healthy foods that are also good for the environment. If we can put our efforts into doing that, we're going to win this one. Thank you, because if people ate a lot less meat, then people would produce and grow a lot less meat. Thank you so much. We've been with Dr. David Tillman from the University of Minnesota and UC Santa Barbara. Thank you so much. You've made us smarter. My pleasure. Nice to be with you. And thank you today for listening in to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line. 
so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourselves. And each of those tiny acts can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is Bernice Butler, your host. Thank you for listening today. And join us again next week for more on food production, our challenges to environment and health as we continue to explore this very interesting and critical subject. Thank you for listening.